morning, everyone. How are we doing this morning? Good, good. Um, glad for you to be here. We only have a couple more messages in First and Second Thessalonians, so we are closely coming to the end uh, in another two weeks. And we have seen from the very beginning, months ago when we started this series, that Paul emphasizes and stresses the gospel almost on every verse. He's talking about the gospel because that is what defines the church. That is what makes us different than a social club or a hobby. It's the gospel. The gospel inundates our lives. And I realize that from your perspective sitting in the pew, and I used to sit there, that when asked to share your faith, it can be a moment of fear. It can be a moment of feeling insignificant. It can be a moment of feeling ill-equipped. And what if you get it wrong? What if you say something in the wrong order? What happens to that person? The beautiful thing is God takes care of the salvation of the individual. All he wants to do is use you as a tool to that end. And in order to help us better come to grips with sharing the gospel with ease, we've come up with this little phrase, cold fingers juggling green reindeer. And we've used that for months, so hopefully in your mind you remember cold fingers juggling green reindeers. Quick disclaimer, someone told me this week that they had an opportunity to share the gospel and the only thing that came to mind was cold fingers juggling green reindeer. That's probably not the way to introduce the gospel to someone because they will think you Think of you as a crazy religious person. But this little cartoon and that little saying should pop into your mind the gospel message, which is creation, and then what? The fall, and then what? Judgment, and then what? Grace, and then what finally? Response. So we already have it in our mind that cold fingers juggling green reindeer have something to do with the gospel presentation to a person. And that gospel presentation is, we talk about creation, we talk about the fall, we talk about God's judgment upon sin and the fall, we talk about grace and the amazing story of Jesus Christ, and then we say, do you believe this? And so in a quick five seconds, 10 seconds, you can present life-changing, life-giving good news and hope, and if there was ever a time in our culture, in our lives, in our society, in our world, that we needed hope, it is definitely during days like this. But don't start out the gospel presentation by telling someone, I've got to tell you a story about cold fingers juggling green reindeer. Now that might get their attention, and if that gets their attention, you can share the gospel from it. Praise God, that's awesome. Uh, but remember, that little Cartoon has a purpose and a goal in mind is to make you feel equipped to share the gospel at the spur of the moment. You've got everything you need to share the words of eternal life. And again, Paul today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 focuses on the gospel. Just a general question, and I want you to raise your hand. Who here needs prayer? Yes. Oh, wow. It's like 100% participation. That is fantastic. Because you're right. We all need prayer. And as we're going to see today, even Paul needs the prayers of God's people to do his work. The mighty Paul 
The Paul who walks into a city is not afraid to put his life on the line and tear down idols and declare the truth in front of hostile crowds. The same Paul who was stoned and had it run out of the city, lowered through the walls, running for his life, arrested, imprisoned, sent to Rome, and martyred. Even Paul, that man of brave faith, needs prayer. And he starts out in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians in that very first verse, talks about two things, but talks about the need that everyone has for prayer and praying specifically for the gospel work. He says, verse 1, as for other matters, Paul's already been talking about a lot of things in these two books. He's been talking about uh, persecution. He's been talking about evil and wickedness, and we're going to look at some of that again today. He's talked a lot about the end times, what's going to be happening in the second coming of Christ, what to look for, and he's been talking about hope that the believer has nothing to worry about or fear from a future that may be unknown because Jesus has already said, I'm in charge and I will take care of you. You will rise again. And so he's been talking about a lot of things. In fact, even last week, that idea of having faith and standing firm in the faith. Don't lose your resolve in the face of persecution and in the face of difficult times. Don't lose resolve. And Paul showed us last week how to keep that faith. But he says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, that family unit of what he calls the local body of believers, pray for us. Why? For the message of the Lord may be spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. He's praying for the gospel message. He's praying for effectiveness. He's praying for boldness. He's praying for courage and strength and opportunities. He's praying that as he has interactions with the world, one thing becomes clear is that the message of the gospel is effective, that it is honored and that it is believed that it would spread rapidly. That's a beautiful thing to pray for, the rapid spreading of the gospel. Because what happens when the gospel spreads rapidly? People get saved. What happens when people get saved? Culture and society changes. What happens when culture and society becomes more and more Christian-focused? Ah, oh, we have a lot less to worry about. I'm just not talking about the physical things of like crime and things like that and personal responsibility and work habits. I'm talking about spiritually, mentally. There is a change in a culture and a society that has God's hand of blessing upon it when the people turn to him. Whether you call it revival, whatever it might be, Paul says you need to pray for us that we would have an effective, quick spreading of the gospel and that it be honored. I think that idea of honoring, some other translations talk about it being believed upon or being trusted in. So Paul's talking about that when the gospel goes forth through them, that there would be an effective change in people, that it would indeed change lives. And God has made us the promise more than once that as his word is spoken, it doesn't return to him, what? Void. Which means God says, I'm going to accomplish what I need to accomplish. And it may not do anything for you at the moment, but for someone else, it may be literally life-changing. And you may hear it a thousand times and it never catches on, and then all of a sudden, one time, bam, I get it. I'm hoping that some of you, as you've sat in pews most of your life, some of you, 
and some of you, maybe not most, some of it just a part of your life, that there comes a point where you're listening to something in a sermon or a song or a scripture reading and you go, oh, I get it now. I never quite understood how that worked. And all of a sudden, I get it. I kind of see how this works now. I kind of see how this connects. I understand it now. That's what Paul is praying for, that the people that hear the gospel message would have that moment of going, ah, I understand it now. I get it. And just like we have that working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our minds when we hear something explained and we go, finally, I get it. Paul says when this cold fingers juggling green reindeer message is shared with others, I want them to be honored by it. I want them to change it, their hearts. I want them to have faith and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ so that they can be saved. Paul mentions that numerous times in his life, that he wants the gospel message to live through his words. In the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be in Ephesians maybe a, a couple times, but in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 6, uh, Paul mentions at the very end of the book, the very last uh, few verses, uh, verse 18 through 20, he says this. He says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. So Paul's saying, if you got something on your heart and mind, pray. If someone's got something on their heart and mind and it's bugging them, pray. Pray every opportunity you have. He says at other times, pray without ceasing. How do you have this mentality of always praying? I think you first of all have to realize that prayer is not a formula. And prayer is not only defined when you bow your head and close your hands, or, or, or close your eyes and bow your head, fold your hands and kneel. That can be prayer, yes. But prayer is more often described in Scripture, especially the Old Testament, as standing upright with your arms uplifted to heaven, declaring His praise in prayer. You can pray in five seconds as much as you can pray in five minutes because it's your relationship and communion with God that matters. There is never a time where I drive by an accident and I don't shout out a quick prayer, Lord, help protect them. And if they are injured, get them help. Constantly. Yeah, I also rubberneck and look and all, everything that everybody else does, but prayer is constantly on my mind. Help them. Help them. It's got to be that daily habit, and you can make it that daily habit, because Paul says it doesn't matter what the situation is. Pray, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and all kinds of requests. With this in mind, okay, with this idea that I'm praying constantly in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Constantly. Paul was a visionary when it came to prayer. Constantly, all the time, prayer was on his heart and mind. He always had this open dialogue and communion with the Father and said, anytime something's going on, I need to talk to you about it. Anytime something good has happened, I need to talk to you about it. It's that constant texting your best friend what's going on in your life. Paul says this is how you need to kind of relate to God. Constantly share with him what's going on in your life, and especially for the Lord's people. And then he says in verse 19, pray also for me. 
that whenever I speak words may be given to me, and that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Paul was already under arrest by the time he wrote to the church at Ephesus. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. What strikes me in there is not that Paul says we need to always be praying. It's not that he even stresses, hey, pray for me. We all need prayer. But he mentions the word fear and fearlessly twice there. Paul was afraid. Paul at times was hesitant and knew he needed the Lord's strength and the prayers of his people to get over that intimidation. Because it can be intimidating, probably more in the days of Paul than in our days, but probably very intimidating for Paul not to know what city he's going into and not to know whose feather he's going to ruffle when he starts saying, put away idolatry and follow the one true God and bow before the Lord Jesus Christ because there's only one God, one Lord, one Savior, one name in in heaven in which to be saved, and it's not Caesar, and it's not the God you're worshiping in that temple. Yes, you needed bravery. Yes, you needed certainty that the message you believe upon can change a sinner's heart. And yes, you needed courage. And Paul says, pray that I would do this fearlessly. He knows God's going to give him the words just as confidently as I know God will give you the words when you are confronted with an opportunity to share the gospel. God's going to bring to your mind the right message, and it may not be in the order of cold fingers juggle green reindeer. The order's nice, but it's just there to help you along the way. You may just get right to the gospel and say, Jesus Christ died for you. Um, I've told this story before. It's a very short illustration, but Charles Spurgeon, a great Reformed Baptist minister in uh, England in the 1800s, constantly spoke to huge crowds, and he was invited to one uh, huge auditorium, and before he got to the auditorium, or when he got there, he got there early, and people were still setting up chairs. There was probably like 10,000 people coming to that evening. And he stood up at the pulpit, and he yelled the word, Repent! That's all he said. And he was actually himself just testing the acoustics of the auditorium because there was no PA system, no mics. And so he had to make sure his voice carried and wanted to see how it resonated. So when he got up there, when it was full of people... He'd kind of know, okay, how loud do I have to speak in order to fill this auditorium? He was was kindly a robust individual, so he had no problem projecting his voice. But he yelled the word, repent. And there was a guy up in the balcony who was setting up chairs that fell down. Not down off the balcony, but fell down on his knees and started weeping. And Spurgeon goes up there and Asked the guy, what happened? You know, what's wrong? Did you hurt yourself? And he goes, no. You convicted me. I need to give my life to Jesus. And he said one word. He didn't say anything about creation. He didn't say anything about the fall. He didn't say anything about judgment. He didn't say anything about Jesus. He just said the response word, repent. And the Holy Spirit made the change in that sinner's heart, and he believed And Paul says, I need that kind of courage. That no matter what the word is that I share, it is the power of Jesus Christ along with it, the power of the Holy Spirit that changes the sinner's heart. You should take great confidence in that story. I take great great confidence. If you can say one word, repent, that might be all that person needs to hear 
for the Holy Spirit to just simply bring them to a deep conviction, and they change right there on the spot. Now, he went on that evening and preached like, almost like two hours. They always did it super, super long. No air conditioning, no entertainment to kind of keep your mind off of it. It was just hot auditorium preaching. But he called that day a success because one individual entered into the glory of heaven who had not known Jesus before through one word. Paul loves that one word. That's all God asks of us, is that we be faithful in the moment to share. Even if we have fear, Paul says that's why we're in this together. That's why we're a family. That's why we gather together as a local body of believers, because when one person is struggling, the other person might be doing great. When one person is in fear, the other person may have an incredible amount of courage. When one person is weak, another person might be strong. We build one another, support one another, encourage one another, challenge one another, and yes, even sometimes lovingly correct one another. And Paul says all of this has to happen together for the gospel to have power for the gospel to be effective, is I need courage. And to get that courage, I need to know God's people are behind me, praying me through that fearful moment of what do I say. Pray, pray, pray. Paul goes on back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, in verse 2 and 3, and he says, and pray that we would be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. So Paul not only is a dreamer, he dreams that everyone would hear the gospel and honor it and come to faith, but he also realizes that reality is that there are some that when they hear the gospel, their hearts are even harder. They hate it even more. They hate, they hate God. And when you present the truth, they attack it. And they not only attack the truth, but history tells us they attack the individual. Paul paid with his very life for standing and not compromising on the gospel and not bowing a knee to Caesar and declaring that Caesar is also God. He refused. He wanted to honor God above the law of man. And he prays for protection from the wicked people. Paul wasn't looking to be martyred. Paul was looking to be an effective sharer of the gospel and to build up the believers in the church. Paul didn't want to die for his faith. He accepted it and embraced it, didn't complain about it, didn't whine about it, didn't run from it, but it wasn't his goal to be martyred. His goal was to share the faith. And in doing so, he realized that there were forces that were very strongly against him, just like they were Jesus. And just like Jesus told his disciples, hey, if they persecuted me, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. So you're in very good company when people ridicule you for your Christian faith. You're in very good company when they hear the gospel from you and say, that's garbage, or worse. You're in good company because that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Time and time again, we saw through the book of Mark, the religious leaders came out against him time and time again and wanted to kill him. 
multiple times, but God said, now's not the time, so we kind of just scooted out of the crowd unnoticed. Paul needs that prayer. Pray that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, Paul says in verse 3. He just mentioned faithlessness, and now he focuses on the faithfulness of God. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. I think ultimately he's talking about the devil, Satan. He will ultimately protect you from that wicked influence from leading you astray. You're not guaranteed in this life to be protected physically, but you are guaranteed that your spiritual life, your well-being, your salvation is protected in the palms of God's hand at all times. Even the point of death can't separate you from God's good favor of love upon his children. But he says, you will be strengthened and protected from the evil one. It reminds me of Jeremiah 29, 11, a verse that says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That's God's view of us. And if that is God's view of us, when Satan, who is contrary to everything God has and everything that God stands for, doesn't stand a chance to God because God has said, I am in it for this person, for these people, for my people, for the bride of my son, Jesus Christ. I'm in it for them, and I have promise for them, and I have blessing for them, and I have hope for them, and I have a destined future for them. And nothing is going to get in the way of that. Reminds me of Romans 8, the very end of that. And let me just read it. It wasn't part of the message here, but it doesn't matter because it's, it's, it's amazing words of incredible comfort. He says in verse 28 of Romans 8, And we know that all things work together for good who love him, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among the brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. He's already determined in his mind your end. You are glorified and nothing, and he says later on, nothing will separate you from his love. He's already in his mind glorified you. We don't feel that now, do we? We feel the pressures of life. We feel the strains of relationship. We feel frustrations. Sometimes we feel anger. Sometimes we feel hate. Sometimes we feel remorse or guilt or shame. All of that aside, God has said, I have already taken my special people with great plans, the plan to be glorified, which means to be truly, honestly freed from all sin, shame, and guilt, and clothed in the righteousness of Christ, just as if we have never sinned. We stand in the glory of Christ's perfection. That is being glorified. In order to get there, still stay in Romans chapter, uh, Romans chapter 4. And in Romans 4, verse 20 and 21, Paul says, Yet he did not waver. He's talking about Abraham. Yet Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God 
but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he had promised. Abraham, he's often called the father of faith. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, sort of those first few figures in the Old Testament that really held on to the promise of God when it was given to them and believed it. And Abraham's secret is not a secret any longer because Paul shares it with us. He says, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised, he believed. And I think that is where we often struggle. We don't struggle with knowing what God has promised. We know what God has promised. We don't struggle that we believe there's a God. 